All right, everybody, good morning. If you have your Bible with you, please open up to Acts chapter 11, verse 1. Last Sunday, we worked our way through the 10th chapter of Acts, and um, we saw God do some really amazing things. He, he's, uh, this takes place, right, uh, shortly after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. And now God is growing his church. He's, he's making people born again to trust in Jesus. And we saw how he's building up the, the church by breaking down racial and cultural barriers. And God's purpose then and now still is to form one unified church composed of people from all people groups of the earth. And specifically, God commanded the apostle Peter, who, who was a Christian from a Jewish background, he told Peter, I want you to associate with non-Jews or Gentiles. God commanded Peter to eat the foods that the Gentiles ate and, and to welcome Jews into his home. And this was against everything that, as a Jew, Peter had ever been taught. And this was God speaking to him. And the Jews had traditionally believed that Gentiles were, were common and unclean and that it was sinful to interact with Gentiles. And it is true that God had called the Jewish people to be set apart from other nations. However, over time, the Jews had strayed from God's intentions, and they became prejudiced against other types of people and from other cultures, essentially dehumanizing people who weren't Jewish. And this isn't to say that only Jewish people did this. Obviously, it is a part of the fall of humanity for all of us to look down on others because of their race or culture or ethnicity or to think that we're somehow inherently better because of ours. But God did something incredible here. He told Peter, I want you to go to the Gentiles. And so Peter followed God's command and he went to this Gentile named Cornelius and who, who was an important Roman military guy who had a whole household there, probably extended family, maybe some friends. And Peter preached the same gospel to these Gentiles that he had preached among the Jews. And what happened is a large group of them, in fact, it says all of them, Cornelius and his whole household believed and they were saved. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit of God fell on them, it said. And, and then as a result, he said, you need to be baptized. And so they, they went and were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ into the same church, okay, which is now composed of Christians from Jewish and Gentile backgrounds. And that event is sometimes called the Gentile Pentecost, which we read about last week. And basically it inaugurated a new human age in history in which the Holy Spirit was aggressively and continues to aggressively expand his kingdom among all the peoples of the earth. And so the church on earth at that time was very quickly becoming more and more diverse with Christians um, from Greece and from other parts of Europe and you had Middle Eastern Christians and you had Christians from North Africa and they're all now in this amazingly mixed group of people called the church. 
And as amazing as it was to, to see God growing this international church, some people were not excited about it. And some of those disgruntled people were, they were Christians. It was, it was to be expected that many non-Christians would look unfavorably upon the growth of the Christian church. But unhappy Christians? Hmm. How was God going to help them embrace his plan for racial and cultural diversity in the church? That's what we're going to look at today in Acts 11, 1. And we're going to work our way through verse 18 and then draw out some applications for us today because it's very, very relevant for where we're at in a number of ways, individually and as a church family. Before we open the word, let's ask God to, to help us. Lord, um, thank you for this time we've had together today. So much to be thankful for already. We just claim you, God, as our holy and gracious Lord and Savior, Jesus. Thank you for being our ever-present help in times of trouble. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us of our prejudices. Forgive us when we look down on others. Help us to do what you command us to do in Philippians 2, to consider one another more significant than ourselves. Lord, we just thank you for your grace. We thank you that even in our failure and sin, God, you have, you've called us to you through the gospel. And we thank you um, for saving us through faith in Jesus. Thank you for giving us a life of purpose and of mission as we seek to know you and love you with all that we are and as we seek to love and know our brothers and sisters in Christ and to love our non-Christian neighbors with your love. So we just, as we open your word, we humbly ask that you would teach us, Holy Spirit, not just our minds, but our hearts. Examine us. See if there's any wicked ways in us so that we might confess our sin, receive your forgiveness, and repent from whatever dishonors you in our life. And we thank you that you promise us purity. We need your help, God. We, we ask you to guard our hearts and minds now in Christ Jesus. Bless the children next door and in the nursery as they learn today. We pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So Acts chapter 11. Verse 1 here. Let's just start with verses 1 to 3. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, referring to the, the Christians of a Jewish background, criticized Peter, criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? Okay, notice what this says. The apostles and the other Christian brothers throughout all of Judea, okay, that's the region, including Jerusalem, the city, they'd heard that the Gentiles had received the gospel and trusted in Jesus, and look at their reaction. Instead of being excited about seeing people saved and about seeing the church grow and about seeing the glory of God expand on earth, the Jewish Christians criticized Peter. And they said to him, you went to uncircumcised men? You went to Gentiles? You ate with them? You, you defiled yourself. And these Christians didn't understand yet that, that obviously that the gospel is for all peoples. 
And their mindset here, if you think about it, was a lot like the Pharisees who criticized Jesus for healing unclean people on the Sabbath, right? Let's just revisit that real quick. Matthew 12, 10 to 14 says, And a man was there with a withered hand, and they, the Pharisees, asked him, Jesus, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. And he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against Jesus how to destroy him. Now, in Peter's case here with these Jewish Christians, they're, they're not out to kill Peter, but they're certainly very critical of him for, as they could see, breaking the, the law of God in their, in their minds. And they couldn't understand why he would, in reality, break their own traditions. That's what's happening. It's not the law that, he, that Peter's breaking. He's breaking their traditions. Why would he do that? In order to share the gospel with Gentiles. Okay, well, let's see how Peter responded here in Acts 11, verse 4 to 18. Let's read it. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea, And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So Peter explains to the Jewish Christians how his apparently law-breaking behavior was not actually law-breaking at all. He was simply obeying the Lord. And Peter repeats to these Jewish Christians that the Holy Spirit, God, told him to no longer make a distinction between Jewish food and Gentile food, between Jews and Gentiles. And then God shows his approval of what Peter's done. He shows approval of Peter's gospel preaching by granting faith and repentance to Cornelius and his household. And then he sends the Holy Spirit to them 
And then he empowers Cornelius and his household to speak in tongues. And this is exactly what God had done at the Jewish Pentecost in, in Jerusalem. And so Peter tells his critics, who am I to stand in God's way? And it says the Jewish Christians were completely silent because Peter was right. God forbid that any of us stand in the way of anything God is doing in our church and community and world. And then it's amazing that they, God changes these people on the spot. He changes their hearts, these critical Christians. He took them from being critics of this new movement of God to, to being worshipers of God for this new movement among the Gentiles. And essentially these Jewish Christians say in agreement, praise God, to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And again, in this very important, this was a critical moment in the, the history of the church. God is the one orchestrating this and he's sovereignly uh, creating a new people, one church that is a melting pot of races and ethnicities. And the church today is the same. And may our church at Cedar Home be a reflection of that. Okay, let's talk about a few ways, three specific ways that this applies to our lives, okay? First, the, here, listen closely. Because our salvation is due to God's grace alone, we have no right to look down on anybody else. Because salvation is by God's grace alone, you have no right to look down on anybody else, believer or non-believer. Our, our church purpose statement says that Cedar Home Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus through gospel-centered worship, community, service, and multiplication. And this application point here in this passage is a crucial part of the type of gospel-centered community that we want to cultivate in our church. Because when we understand that the only reason, when we really believe this, the only reason God has forgiven us, the only reason we are no longer enemies with God but have eternal life through faith in Jesus, the only reason we've been made born again is because of God's grace alone. When we believe that, when we remember that, it completely changes the way that we interact with him, and it completely changes the way that we interact with other people, believers and non-believers. Because truly believing that, that you're a sinner saved by the grace of God means that you have absolutely zero grounds before God and before men to claim that you are better than anyone else. You are an undeserving recipient of God's grace. And so am I. And this is, man, so what's so cool here is I was reading the book of Romans this week, and in the third chapter uh, in his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul is extrapolating this, okay? We're seeing the truth played out here in, in Peter's life, and then Paul is preaching on it about what is the reality that's happening here. And uh, he, Paul explains how our peace with God through faith in Jesus is only due to God's grace, not because of our race, not because of our ethnicity, not because of our good works. So as a result, Paul says, none of us can look down on anyone because of their lifestyle, because of their race, because of their choice to obey God or to disobey God. It doesn't mean we approve of sin. 
That's not what he says. But it does mean that we, as needy sinners ourselves, have no grounds to look down on others. I want to read that. If you have your Bible, flip over to Romans real quick, okay? And I did not give the computer person a heads up. And that's okay. You don't need to put it on the screen. I just want you to listen. Acts, letter to the Romans. Romans is right after Acts. Romans chapter 3. Verse 9. So what Paul does here, this is so cool. He really does, he wants us to understand grace. And so he does this by pointing out, he levels the playing field. And he starts as he's saying, all have sinned against God. Everybody in here, all of the human race has sinned. And so enough of this, you're better because of this, or you're better because there's no boasting. You have nothing to boast about, right? And then, and it's so awesome, he, he, this whole section of scripture revolves around the word grace. When God broke in because of his grace, and then watch how Paul concludes this, okay? So Acts, uh, sorry, Romans 3, 9 to 30. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of, and he's talking about, who's he talking about? Humanity. Okay, that's the subject. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the peace, the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Okay, not much good news there at all. Okay, now... We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be, what? Stopped. (laughs) And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's a very important verse, you guys. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. You will not be saved because of your works. You cannot be saved. Now let's keep reading. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. See that same phrase It's in our passage too? There's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace. By, by what are we justified? His grace as a what? A gift. That's what salvation is. His grace as a gift. And how does this happen? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God the Father put forward as a propitiation by his blood. A, 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 a propitiation, a sacrifice that absorbs the wrath of God and appeases God completely. That's what God did for us in Jesus. He was put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received how? By faith. By trusting in it. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So because of Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, God who is just is your justifier. He's the one who makes you righteous. Because you don't have it on your own, right? That's what Paul spent the whole beginning of this passage talking about, which we already read. So what does he say in verse 27? Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. It's awesome. So Paul's saying the exact same message that Peter is experiencing and beginning to preach himself here. That's because there's one Holy Spirit filling them, okay? And um, let's talk about what this means. It means because Jesus Christ came to earth to rescue us, because he died on the cross to suffer in our place for our sins, in your place for your sin, because he rose from the dead to declare you not guilty in God's sight, you have nothing you could ever boast in except Jesus. Like you seriously, it's not like there are options to boast in. It's like if you boast in everything, you're, anything else, you're delusional. That's what he's saying. There's nothing to boast in, Christian, except Jesus. In Jesus' righteousness, in Jesus' cross, and in Jesus' resurrection. And this is why it played out, um, well, for instance, this is why there can be no caste systems in Christianity. And that's maybe something we're not familiar with in our, in our uh, culture, largely in a, an official way, but that is what Christians around the world um, experience. And that's why even internationally we preach this gospel. There, is, there are no, there's no place for caste systems. Now, in a, in a way, in churches, though, you can put, you can make castes in your own mind. You could say, well, there are the, the varsity Christians, the super Christians, and then there's the JV who ride the bench, right? Or there's the mature Christians, and then there's the, the carnal Christians, right? That's it's not biblical. <laughs> there's not, there's Christians. You're either saved or you're not. That, that, that's, that's how it is. So what that means is it changes the way we should interact with one another. It means we're all broken. We all need God's help. We all need, yeah, we've been saved. We're, I'm, and I'm so thankful God took my, my care of my greatest eternal enemies for me. And I'm so thankful he's here with me. But I'm still going to suffer and my life's going to be broken and I need him to redeem the situations in my life, Right? And this is why we, in the church, as teenagers, at youth group, at mops, wherever you're at, we have to, as Christians, really push against social cliques. And it is a blessing to have friendships in, with Christians, but not to the neglect of other, other Christians. You hear that? 
And so God has not called us to be inward-looking people. He's called us to be outward-looking. Why? Because he's outward-looking. He didn't say, well, I'm just content to be in heaven, and I'm going to be just fine, and they're all going to go to hell, and that's fine. We deserve that, right? He didn't, though. That's not the model. He said, I'm coming for you. And that's, that should be our mindset, too. We want these people in our church on Halloween, not because we love Halloween and we love the evil it represents, but because we want, we want them to know about Jesus. We want to love them. We want them to know that God loves them, that they're valuable. And, uh, you know, and so this idea of, of cliques or castes, we have to push against that in the, in the church. Romans 15, 7 says, welcome one another as... Same way Jesus Christ welcomed you. How did he do that? Think about it. Just that's a good one to meditate on. It's like, wow. And that's, that's not like, you should consider doing that. No, it's like a command. Welcome one another. The same way Christ welcomed you and included you. God's grace is why the Christian who struggles with one form of sin... Let's take it, make it more specific. The Christian who struggles with one form of sexual sin has no grounds to criticize another Christian or non-Christian who struggles with a different form of sexual sin. You're making categories in your head. Both sins need to be repented of, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. And God's grace is, is, what, is, is why we should seek to be servants of everybody, Right? We're servants of Christians and non-Christians alike. We serve others because Christ served us first, right? Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, he died for us. We are objects of grace, and we want to be givers of God's grace. And we, we, it sounds, it's much harder to do than to say. So we need the Holy Spirit to help us to change us so that we become more like him and pour out his grace on others as we've received his grace. Now, a challenge for you and me to think about, Christian, teenager, kid, older person, who are the people in your life that you look down on? Are there general groups of people that you look down on, right? Um, are, are there people who instinctively you, you think you're, you're better than? If so, if we, when we get to that, we've forgotten about the grace of God that saved a wretch like you and me. That's why grace is amazing. That's why we sing amazing grace. Okay? This is what it means. May God help us then, right? In a very practical way, when you leave today, May God help you to show grace to your restaurant waiter, to be a greater servant to them than they are to you. May God help you to be kind to the customer service person on the phone you might be frustrated with, to our cashiers at the grocery store, to our non-believing coworkers and customers, to the kids at school who are different than us, to the construction workers in our neighborhood, to our business customers who irritate us, to people of different nationalities than us, may we give grace. May we give grace to them. Because in Christ, we are objects of grace. And we see this always starting back in Genesis 12, when God gave this, told Abram how he's gonna make a people for himself. God says, I'm blessing you 
to be a blessing to others. You're blessed to be a blessing. And so in our hearts, may we, as Christians, sing and believe, believe this amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. That's just the first application point, okay? We got a couple more. 1110. Sorry, don't look at your watch. Um, We got two more, because these are very important, and, and we need to know how else this passage applies to our lives. So the second application question is this. How should we Christians apply Old Testament commands to our lives? How should we apply Old Testament commands to our lives, which are, which are those commands that were given before Jesus came to earth? Maybe somebody has accused you of being inconsistent in which Bible verses you obey because, you know, you don't eat shellfish or you don't wear clothes, or, or sorry, you eat shellfish, you wear clothing made of two different types of materials. Uh, you do not sacrifice a dove every Sunday morning before you come to church, hopefully. Um, in order to understand the Old Testament commands and how and which ones apply to Christians, we have to understand some of the differences, uh, distinct differences between the Jewish nation and the Christian church. In the Old Testament, Israel was a theocracy, okay? It was both a community of faith and a national government at the same time. And so that's why you'll read all sorts of laws in the Old Testament about how to deal with domestic disputes and what's legal to eat and how to punish criminals. Israel policed itself, right? They had laws just like we have laws in our town. Those are called the civil laws in the Old Testament. But as Christians, we don't follow the civil laws of the Old Testament because the church is no longer a political nation. The church is a community of Christ followers spread all around the world, living in many nations among many different peoples. And so we should now follow the laws of the nation in which we live. Okay? And since Israel was not only a government, but it was also a religious community, then God also gave them ceremonial laws to obey as they worshiped God. And this includes all the laws about how to perform sacrifices and what kind of animals to use and how to keep the religious order and the priests holy and pure. Those are called the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. But the ceremonial laws no longer apply to Christians because they've been fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is our final sacrifice. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is our temple where we meet God. And the other aspect of the Old Testament law is, is the moral law. And, and the moral law refers to everything that God tells us, uh, uh, everything God tells us is right and wrong, which we should obey, regardless of race, ethnicity, or the age in which we live on earth. And as Christians, we follow the moral pro- precepts that God gives us in the Old Testament because they're not restricted to the ceremonial or civil laws, okay? So for instance, almost all of the Ten Commandments are explicitly expressed in one way or another in the New Testament. And the sexual sins that God forbade in the Old Testament, He also forbids in the New Testament. And even though we don't have to follow the Old Testament civil and ceremonial laws, we should look for the reason behind those laws 
And what's the moral underpinning which applies to us today? For instance, the reason God commanded Jews not to eat shellfish isn't because God didn't like shellfish, okay? It's because as a nation, he wanted Israel to be holy and set apart from the other nations who did eat shellfish because God is showing us a picture of himself. He is holy and set apart. And so his people must be holy and set apart. But in the gospel, it's bigger than being holy and set apart on the outside. It's about having an inner holiness that is imputed to us through faith in Christ. It's about being circumcised in your heart through faith in Jesus. And so today we Christians can eat shellfish, but we remember that God still wants us to live holy lives and to be set apart in the midst of many people who do not love him. So in short, okay, because the uh, church is not a nation like Israel was, we don't follow the civil laws given to Israel in the Old Testament, okay? If an adulterer is found in our midst, we're not going to take them outside of town and stone them to death. And now that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the ceremonial law as our final sacrifice, we do not need to follow the ceremonial law. But we should follow God's moral laws given in the Old and New Testament. And we should know this, that our obedience to the moral law does not save us, right? Paul's already hammered that out there in Romans 3. Rather, we want to follow God in his law because we want to worship him. Because he's good and he loves us and he's proven that to us over and over again. And so I want to do what you say, God. Okay, third application from today's passage is this. Don't ever underestimate the power of evangelistic hospitality, which I'm not sure is a phrase I've heard of until the past couple of weeks. Evangelistic hospitality. I've understood the concept, but now there's a term for it. This is inviting non-Christians into your home to serve them, to love them, and to point them to Jesus. When Peter invited Cornelius's Gentile servants and soldier into Simon the Tanner's house as his guest, they, they would have been shocked, right? They had likely never had any devout Jew welcome them inside their house before. And Peter just, he wasn't just some Jew. This is the, the apostle Peter, right? He just healed a man. He just raised a woman from the dead. He's the guy, one of the main players here in the early church leading this movement, and God here is commanding Peter to show hospitality to Gentiles, to eat with them, just like Jesus ate with sinners. Not to approve of their sin, but to help people be freed from their sin and to love them. And this model of evangelistic hospitality is a powerful way that, that we can love our non-Christian neighbors and our non-Christian friends today by welcoming them in sharing a meal with them, and loving them as a human being made in the image of God. And as the Spirit leads, having spiritual conversations with them. At our house, we try to share at least one family meal together a day, and that's normally at dinner time. And sometimes after dinner, we'll get the Bible out and talk about what it means and read some scripture and sing some songs and talk about how that applies to our lives. And those dinnertime devotions don't happen every night. But when one of my kids has a non-Christian friend out over for dinner, 
you can bet we're going to open the Bible that night and talk about Jesus. My house, my rules, okay? Hey, you're going to hear about Jesus if you're around my table. And I encourage you parents or grandparents to do the same. Don't waste any opportunity you have to point the non-Christian kids in your life to Jesus. Or the kids who come from non-Christian homes. Or any kid, right? And it doesn't mean you're preaching at them. It's talking about being hospitable toward them. It's talking about serving them. To be kind to them and gracious and to encourage uh, them as you and your family talk together about how awesome Jesus is, how great God is. One of my favorite authors is a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. And several years ago, she was um, strongly uh, opposed to Christianity. She was a strong activist, in uh, the le- one of the leading LGBTQ activists uh, on the East Coast. And her life was profoundly changed by an older Christian couple who welcomed her into their home and pointed her to Jesus. And I just want to show you her story. It's about six minutes, but I want, I want you to see it. So let's play it out. this time, where so many Christian ideas are understood as hate speech. After the Obergefell decision legalized gay marriage, that put the gospel on a collision course with the new law of the land. And I think many Christians have been struggling with, well, how do I speak? What do I do? How do I move forward? is a vital place to invite your neighbors in to have some heartfelt conversations. We can love our children together. We can let some things slide, even though the world we live in would say that we're supposed to be enemies. To me, hospitality is the ground zero of the Christian faith. I was raised in an Italian family There were some issues in my house that made it almost impossible to have people in. So hospitality didn't really become endemic to my life until I had set up a home of my own. I was a professor at Syracuse. I lived as an out lesbian feminist in New York. In our LGBTQ community, somebody's home was open every night of the week. And there was never a question, where will I go? if I need help, because the community itself is organic and fluid, and that was how we dealt with crises. After I wrote my tenure book, I really wanted to write a book that was on my heart. Why is the religious right such a hateful community? And why do they hate people like me? I was on a war against two things, patriarchy and stupid. So I was really curious to know why relatively decent people would use the Bible in such a hateful way. So I wrote an editorial and it brought all kinds of attention my way, which I didn't really expect. But one of the things it brought my way was a letter from Ken Smith, the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. When Ken and his wife Floyd invited me to dinner, I was happy. I I thought of Ken as my unpaid research assistant. And they were fine with the fact that I I wanted to read the Bible to critique it. That began a research journey that changed my life. 
But it wasn't research that changed my life. In Ken and Floyd's home, the way that they practiced hospitality became a living, breathing example of the theology that they were teaching. After my first dinner at Ken and Floyd's house, Ken gave me a big hug, Floyd gave me a big hug and a kiss on the cheek. We said, we'll catch up next week. This was fun, can't wait to do it again. They did not share the gospel with me and they did not invite me to church. And that was so wonderful because what it showed to me was that they didn't see me as a project. They actually saw me as a neighbor. Now, I didn't step foot in the church for two years, but every week I was in their home. And every week, it was clear that pretty much anything could go. We could ask anything. Ken and Floyd were fine. And that process of dialogue and table fellowship was compelling. It was deeply compelling. I did not come to faith because I stopped feeling like a lesbian. It's not that I got all of my worldview issues just completely cemented with a happy Christian evangelism, not at all. I came to faith because I became convicted that Jesus is who he says he is. Ephesians 4.29 is our watchword, that we are to impart grace to the hearer. I might not agree with everything that you hold to be near and dear, but because we are neighbors, I don't have to say everything that's on my heart. And you don't have to say everything that's on your heart right now. We can put some of our worldview issues aside. And over years of this, the gospel takes on a momentum that is compelling to people. I think we need to give each other the reminder that it's God who saves. It's not about certainly us being perfect or our words being perfect, but show up we must in the lives of unbelievers. What comes naturally to me and what comes naturally to you is to hang out with people who are like us, <laughs> people who can maybe finish our sentences, people who don't scare us. But hospitality, biblically speaking, takes strangers and makes them neighbors, and takes neighbors and makes them family of God. It's a great joy to see the gospel bring people together who are supposed to be enemies, and it's a great joy to know that God never gets the address wrong. And if your neighbors aren't people you know yet, there's a blessing waiting for you. about you I love the idea of showing hospitality to non-christians and I want to be part of that and at the same time I'm very good at making excuses for why that won't work for me um, I'm really busy I I don't have a very nice house I'm not good at talking to people I'm not a good cook I don't like having people in my nest I have a hard enough time having Christians over let alone non-christians well we can always come up with a million reasons not to do something and thankfully, our salvation is not dependent upon our own evangelistic efforts. But I pray this, that, that 
if the reason for our lack of hospitality of Christ, as Christians is due to pride or to fear or to not caring about the lost, that we would repent from that. Because those things don't reflect the heart of Christ. And I have a challenge for you and for me. Okay, I'm reading this passage, I'm like, okay, I gotta apply it to my life too, okay? Would I, would you, would we commit? I'm not, I don't want a loud, out loud answer. I'm just, it's kind of a challenge. Would we commit to welcoming one non-Christian person or family into our home to share a meal with us sometime in the next month? Not to, I mean, if you have spiritual conversations, that's great. If you don't, that's okay. But just to love on a non-Christian. And I realize some of you are in different circumstances and that, that won't work for you right now. And I just do not want anyone to feel pressured to do that. But as I look at one of the applications of this passage, it just, it's like, okay, I don't want it to just be something I'm talking about or believe it's important in my head, but how am I living it now? First Peter 4, 9 says this, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Right? So I don't want anyone to feel pressured. But I also know that if, sometimes if I don't set a goal for myself, I may never getting around to doing something that's important. And so I, I'm commit, I'll be the first one to commit to you. I'm going to have a non-Christian person or family in my house before Thanksgiving, God willing. And I would just ask you, would you consider doing that too? And if you, if you do, would you let me know? Just because I want to be praying for you. And I want to build bridges with our neighbors. And I want them to know the love of Christ. You can let me know on the drop, you know, if today you know. It's like, just put that on your little connection card or a piece of paper and put it in one of the boxes or shoot me an email or something. But anyways, I think we need to wrestle with that, this idea of evangelistic hospitality. How are we being hospitable to non-Christians in this building and in our own neighborhoods and in our own homes? So in this passage, the Apostle Peter was present. Think about this. He was, he was present here, but he was also present at the Jewish Christian Pentecost in Jerusalem. He was present at the Samaritan Christian Pentecost in Samaria, and now he's present at the Gentile Christian Pentecost in Caesarea. And ever since then, God has been and is still breaking down walls and building up his church through the power of the gospel message and through the power of the Holy Spirit who makes people born again. And so let us May we continually praise God that he saved us by his grace alone through our faith alone in the gospel. May we praise God, the son Jesus, for being our final sacrifice who's fulfilled the law for us perfectly already. He is our high priest. He's the temple who ushers us into God's presence. And let's praise God, the Holy Spirit, for filling us with love for people and with supernatural courage to declare the good news of Jesus to them. And I pray, I hope, I would love to see you on Tuesday night so we could pray together about all these things together as a church family. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time we've had together this morning. Just a lot to chew on from this passage, and we thank you for that, God. But uh, the one central theme that I just think of is grace, this message of grace. And thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you for showing us grace. Help us to live by grace through faith every day. This isn't just some abstract concept of grace. This was a grace that was purchased for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
We thank you for that. Help us to love one another well, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.